Please open your Bible to Galatians chapter 1. And while we turn there, I want to freely acknowledge and admit that I'm in some sense stealing the opening questions I want to ask you from directly from that, that CD packet I recommend from R.C. Sproul. But I remember um, sitting in the Master's Seminary um, at the Shepherds Conference in the overflow room where they, they siphoned off the seminary students. As he opened the address... Speaking about the gospel, asking this question, he said to the men addressed, and I'll ask you, how many here would self-identify as Protestants? You you can do a little show of hands. How many here would self-identify, I'll raise my hand, as Protestants? What are you protesting? What are you protesting? We, We gather in an evangelical free church. What is that euangelion? What is that evangel that we cherish and prize? And to those who are passionate about gospel ministry and sharing the gospel, what is that gospel that we proclaim to the world? In 1517, by God's providence, there was a rediscovery, a reclarification of those issues. 1517, All Saints Day, Martin Luther the simple act of taking a nail and a piece of paper, nailing it to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, sparked, that event sparked, what over the next months and years would become the Protestant Reformation, the fragmenting of the once unified and holy Catholic Church. Catholic with a lowercase c, unified. There's a lot of of violence, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of tumult. Some... I've asked the question even these days, was it necessary? Was it, was it needful? Was it, was it important? It, couldn't we have found a way to get along? We live in a day, after all, that, that celebrates tolerance, diversity, hearing each other, dialogue. And, that, and I'm here to answer this morning the question with a little bit of church history. No, no, there, there, there was no way that this disagreement could be resolved without one party changing their view. And then the question is further asked today. Well, hasn't all that been resolved? Haven't we all come closer together? We'll look at that as well. So I'd like to begin this morning by reading. We're going to be be working through various passages in Galatians. I'm going to try to stick primarily to Galatians. We'll do one or two detours to Romans. But I think Galatians can resolve this issue relatively clearly. I want to begin by reading... Galatians 1, 6 through 10. <clears throat> I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That that passage, last word accursed, will make some sense as we, as we walk through. Now, before we, before we go much further, I want to give you a little backstory. 
Now, prior to the Protestant Reformation, the, the, the church that called itself Christian was unified. And it existed under a hierarchical structure of authority that crescendoed at the Pope. That started in the 4th century, this sort of universal Catholic church, started in the 4th century when Constantine legalized and then made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. And that unity of church and state continued. And over time, in the Catholic tradition, um, the, the, the councils, the um, decisions of synods began to be elevated in their authority. And so by the time of Martin Luther's day, the Roman Catholic Church had, and still has, three pillars of authority. The first was Scripture. Scripture was an authority. The second, the, the church councils and canons and decrees, traditions of the church. The third, the Pope himself, the Vicar of Christ, when speaking from the chair, ex cathedra. So not all the things he says, but when he operates that function, when he speaks as the Vicar of Christ, he gets to declare and define doctrine in a way that is absolutely binding to the conscience in the church. And and that's what Martin Luther's dealing with. Martin Luther became a monk deeply convicted of his own sin, looking to find a way to find relief from his sin. He, He was nearly killed in a lightning strike, and he prayed at that lightning strike if God would spare his life, that he would give himself to God. And he becomes a monk, and as he's studying the Scripture, he begins to realize that what he's reading in the New Testament, what he's reading in Paul, what he's reading in the Gospels, differs significantly from what he had been taught. What started initially as a simple dispute of doctrine, let's talk about these things. Luther had no intention initially of separating from the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, he was under the impression that many of the things he heard taught were people misrepresenting the Pope. It became clear over time that the church fragmented. And so we got to ask the question, was that necessary? And then you've got to ask the secondary question, is it necessary for me to pause Luke's gospel? Is it a good thing? And spend a week talking about this. Why be divisive? Why, why do this? And so my first point here is to try to establish that, yes, the issue they were debating, the issue they were disagreeing over is of critical importance. And that, yes, because that issue is still misunderstood and that issue is still being disagreed upon today, it is appropriate from time to time and stop and examine these things. So your first blank here is this, from, from this passage in Galatians. There cannot be another gospel. There cannot be another gospel. That's the word Paul uses in verse 7. Not that there is another one. Can't be another gospel. And one of the things we've got to think through as Christians is the relative importance of the things on which we disagree. Now, this is something we have biblical precedent for. In 1 Corinthians 15, laying out the gospel, Paul says to the Corinthians, now I will remind you of what I taught you, those things of first importance. So Paul can identify Christian teaching, Christian truth, that is in a category of first importance, primary teaching. Paul can also identify other things, such as whether a person's conscience is able to let them eat meat or eat vegetables only. I'm thinking of Romans 14, where Paul clearly thinks there's a right answer. He says, the weak person eats vegetables only. But he doesn't say to fight, have a showdown. He says, accept one another. So Paul can identify doctoral disagreement where there is a right answer. It's not as though Paul's saying, well, who knows? Hey, guys, can't you coexist? Can't you not use your liberty to offend your brother? Can't you not judge your brother? Can't we get along? Can't we agree to disagree agreeably? 
And so we've got to be careful when we examine an issue. Is this something worth making a deal out of? I mean, I regularly go to conferences with teachers that I sit under who disagree with me on such things as infant baptism, on the understanding of the relationship of Israel and the church. But I gladly call them brothers. I gladly learn from them. I gladly sit under them. And yet Paul, here in Galatians chapter 1, makes it clear that at least this topic of the gospel is something we cannot agree to disagree on. That's the next point. We cannot agree to disagree on the gospel. In no other place in Paul's writing does he come out this guns blazing. We understand we're starting in verse 6 of Galatians 1. We've got the opening greeting. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches at Galatia, Grace and peace to you from our Father, God, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished. He he gets through his greeting, and he just comes out and comes blazing. And he's cursing people. You never see that type of strength of language in Paul's writing, except here. Whatever this issue is, this other gospel, Paul's willing to go to the mat over it. And that's exactly the issue. Understanding the gospel that that Luther and the Catholic Church, and I would submit to you, the Protestant Church and the Catholic Church today disagree on. Luther started the Protestant Reformation in 1517. In 1545 through 63, the Roman Catholics responded with their own council, their counter-reformation at the Council of Trent. Though Germany had demanded a general council immediately following Martin Luther's excommunication, Pope Clement VII held back from having such a council for fear that it would just be an occasion for renewed attacks at his supremacy. Clement's successor, Pope Paul III, however, was convinced that Christian unity and effective church reform could only come through such a council, and he invoked the Council of Trent in northern Italy, which opened December 13, 1545. Forty or so Catholic bishops gathered together and over about a decade or more, two decades, nearly two decades, they worked through these issues. They responded to the challenges of the Protestant Reformation. And in their responses, part of what they did, and, and, and it's, it's, it's a positive way to, to affirm what you believe. If you read doctrinal statements, if you read the creeds, a positive way, a common way, and what I'm even doing this Sunday morning is I try to lay out what is the gospel? What, is, what does it mean to be saved? Is say, we believe this, we do not believe this. And, and, and the contrast of, of this, not this, helps clarify what we believe. And the Catholics did the exact same thing. And so... During Trent's sessions, the Catholic Church would come out with various canons or decrees. And they would use a word at the end of them, and what they, the canons would take on this form. If someone says or if someone believes, da 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 let them be anathema. And what they were doing is they are making direct reference to this passage in Galatians 1. Because the Greek word translated twice as accursed in verse 8 Verse 9 is precisely the word anathema. It means damned to hell, cursed by God. And so Rome, in its response to the Reformation, understood that the disagreement was such and of such severity 
that it falled under the condemnation the Apostle Paul gives here in Galatians 1. They understood that. They understood this is no small misunderstanding. Likewise, the reformers on the other side understood this is a big deal. This is a big deal. We cannot agree to disagree on the gospel. A chapter later in Galatians, the Apostle Paul tells us how he publicly withstood Peter to his face over this issue. You can imagine the, the controversy in the church. Here's, here's Peter, the number one, the preeminent apostle, and Paul publicly making an issue with him over the gospel. And Paul's letter here and his practice is such that when the gospel begins to be compromised, he had to clarify. And so I do believe this is a topic worth discussing. It's a topic worth um, being clear on. Now, one of the things I do want to be clear on, as we do the we believe this, not this, I want to be very careful not to make a caricature or a straw man of Roman Catholic faith. It's two qualifications to make. That's the first. I will be quoting, when I quote them, from their own canons and decrees. I went and did the research. You can fact check me going online to the current Vatican Catechism. You can look up the Council of Trent just like I did. And I will quote them verbatim so they can speak for themselves. There's another qualification I want to make as well. Roman Catholicism is no longer nearly as centralized as it once was. And I'm well aware that the American Catholic Church has a lot, has been given a lot of latitude by the Vatican. It's got a long leash. And there are plenty of Catholic churches, if you watch um, Larry King or others, or bishops who will get up and advocate positions not held by the Roman Catholic Church. And so I want to be careful. I'll be addressing what Rome states it believes on their website in their formal and official catechisms. Do not assume that that necessarily means that is what is taught in every Catholic church, and certainly do not assume that is what every person you meet who calls himself a Catholic believes. My own father, who came to faith later in life, was a Catholic all of his days, and there are many cardinal, key Catholic doctrines he didn't even believe or hadn't even heard of. The Immaculate Conception of Mary, um, things like that. So I'll be speaking about Roman Catholic official teaching. Please do not assume this represents everybody you meet who bears the name Catholic. Talk to them, befriend them, ask them questions. I'm certain there are people who are born again and saved in the Catholic Church. What I'm equally certain of is nobody, let me be clear on this, nobody who believes what Rome teaches on the gospel will be saved. Let me be equally clear on that. Nobody who believes it is another gospel. Nobody who believes what the Roman Catholic Church officially teaches on the gospel will be saved. So, I think there are plenty of Catholics who don't know what Rome believes and trusted in Jesus. So, ask questions. But I'm dealing with specifically is what they teach, what's on their records, what's on their books, what's coming out of the Vatican. So, I want to be, those are my two qualifications. Point B, both sides understand whoever is wrong on this is under a curse, anathema. Now, the reason, if you look at the box at the top, I put a second date, up, a third date up there, is this. You might say, well, Jeremy, in the 16th century, Rome came out and condemned the reformers, but haven't things changed since then? And you may well be aware of the Council Vatican II that met from 1962 to 65. It was when the Roman Catholic Church officially loosened up. It's when they stopped insisting the Mass could only be done in Latin and then was able to be done in English. It was when they tried to sort of catch up with the times to an extent. And one of the things, though, they chose to do in Vatican II, consciously and deliberately, is to reaffirm each 
and every one of the canons, the pronouncements, the judgments of Trent. So as recent as the 1970s, the Roman Catholic Church looked at the Council of Trent, looked at the decisions made there, and said, we still affirm and believe this. It's kind of ironic that the Pope today is in our, has been in our country in the last few months and talking about how people who may not even believe in God may go to heaven. People who are well-meaning Muslims may go to heaven. But as recent as the 1970s, they looked at the Protestants and they said, you're still damned to hell. Let me, let me read it. Let me read it. They went through in the Council of Trent various sessions. And in the sixth session of the Lateran Council, they discussed the issue of justification in the gospel. I'm just going to read three canons. There are 33 of them. You can take a test, see just how many of the canons you fall under condemned. I think I scored about 20. I'll read three to you. Canon 12 in the sixth session if anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in divine mercy which remits sin for Christ's sake, or that it is this confidence alone that justifies, let him be anathema. Guilty as charged. 19. If anyone says that nothing besides faith is commanded in the gospel, let him be anathema. Cursed be the one who says nothing but faith is required. 1970, we still believe that. Canon 30, if anyone says that after receiving the grace of justification, the guilt is so remitted or removed, and the debt of punishment so blotted out to every repentant sinner, that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged either in this world or in purgatory. Let them be anathema. If anyone's basically, if anyone says the forgiveness of Christ so removes sin that there's no more debt to be paid, let them be cursed. We do not believe the same thing. We do not believe the same thing. And they are invoking the language of Galatians 1 because they understand this is central gospel issues. We're not disagreeing on eating meat. We're not disagreeing on infant baptism. We're disagreeing on the gospel. It is crucial. It is crucial. And we have a real disagreement. Again, my desire is not to make a caricature, not to pick on, but using their own, this is what they say they believe. There was a real disagreement then. There is a real disagreement now. Okay. That's the first point. There cannot be another gospel. Point two. Justification is essential to the gospel. Now, what can be confusing for some Protestants on this issue is that in many respects, Rome and we believe the same thing. When you look at the gospel even, there are, there are two pieces, I think, two wings on the plane that are essential. The first is rightly understanding who Jesus Christ is. He is the Son of Man, and He's the Son of God, fully human, fully divine, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins. And on all of that, we in Rome agree. And that's what can be confusing. They've got the same Jesus. They've got the same, they've got the same death. They've got the same sinless life. They've got the same resurrection. We, we agree on all of that. The, the issue with the Reformation, the issue now is over. The second question, how can what Jesus did be received by a person? 
So, so it really asks actually two questions. What actually did Jesus accomplish for the sinner? What did he actually accomplish in his death? And how can I receive that? How can I be, partake of, of, of the benefits of his death? That, that's, that's the question the disagreement was on. The Apostle Paul consistently, when just speaking of this particular topic, speaks of the term justification. Justification. And, and so I'm going to start by defining the term. What does justification mean? Here's what we believe it means. Turn to, turn to Galatians chapter 2. I'll read Paul, his own words. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Justification, you can read it on the notes, is the legal act of God by which he forgives our sins and declares us to be righteous in his sight. This is a point on which Rome and the Reformers disagreed. Rome would not agree with this definition. I, I believe it's the biblical definition. I believe it's the true definition. Rome would not agree. Two points of disagreement specifically are these. First, it is an instantaneous act. It is an instantaneous act. We believe that justification takes place in a moment in time when God declares us to be righteous. There's a moment where you were not righteous in God's sight. There's a moment where you are. There's a moment where you were dead in your sins. There's a moment where you're alive in Christ. There's a moment that you were under condemnation. There's a moment where you have life and light and liberty. Don't take my word for it. Let's, let's read Paul. Galatians 3, 6-9. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Actually, that's a question mark. I should probably go back a little further. Um, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And the key point is this. He's citing Genesis, the account where it said, Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. In a moment in time, God saw Abraham's faith and he said, I'm going to, and the counting is an accounting term, so reckoning. I'm going to reckon that to you. I'm going to credit that to you. Whereas we'll see a little later, impute that to you as righteousness. It's an instantaneous act. The reason why I want to make that point is this is a point on which Rome strongly disagrees. Listen to Canon 24 from the Sixth Lateran Council of Trent. If anyone says, and this is a long sentence, I'll try to slow down. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and the signs of justification, 
but not its cause of increase. Let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. What they're saying is this. If anyone says that whatever Paul means by justification, once it is received, if anyone says that we do not need to improve upon that justification by our own good works, we make it bigger and better and brighter and shinier. If anyone, if anyone deny, doesn't believe that, and then they put it to me even clearer, or but simply that those fruits are merely signs. If anyone says, no, the good deeds you do after justification are evidences of salvation. No, no, no. Those good deeds contribute to, they build up. The, the analogy I'd use is this. Rome teaches that at justification, which usually in their view occurs at infant baptism, it's as though Jesus Christ gave you a sapling oak tree. Admission to heaven requires a full-grown oak tree. Now, there's a sense in which, praise Jesus, you, you wouldn't have an oak tree to tend to and to water without him giving it to you. All the watering and all the tending in the world doesn't get you an oak tree. So Jesus gives you this sapling righteousness. Now it's up to you to tend to it, to protect it, and through your good deeds, increase it. And if you have not got a full-grown oak tree by the time you die, as most people will not, unless you're a saint, you will continue tending that in purgatory. And once you've reached full-grown oaks of righteousness, you are welcome to go into heaven. That's what they're saying. And if you deny that, you're damned. If anyone says that justifying faith, justice received, sorry, is not preserved and also increased before God through good works. So it's a process. Justification is a process. You'll spend your entire life growing in justification. You'll spend your entire life developing, cultivating, improving upon your justification. It's getting bigger. It's getting shinier. It's all because of what Jesus did. You wouldn't be able to do this without Jesus. But you must improve. Let me make this really clear. You must improve upon the work of Christ. Anyone want to raise their hand and say they're doing that? You must improve upon the work of Christ. It's an instantaneous act. Point two. It is a legal act. It is a legal act. It's the other big point. As you saw, you probably already pieced together. In Rome's view, justification is the process by which God makes you in practice and in fact righteous. So the words that come out of your mouth and the deeds and the state of your heart is righteous. And that's why it's a process. That's why you grow in justification. What we've just seen in, in Galatians is, is God reckoned, God credited it to you. That, that's the legal language. It's a legal act. Now, I'll quote Romans 8 here. We want to get some clarity on what Paul means by justification. He says this in Romans 8.33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. So what's the contrast of being justified, being condemned? This is legal court language. And the concept is this. A judge and a jury will either find the defendant just... And that judgment justifies them, declares them just, or guilty. And once God has declared you innocent, Paul is saying, who is there to condemn? Who is there to say you are guilty? This is a legal reckoning. It's what God did with Abraham long before Abraham demonstrated his faith through offering up his son Isaac simply by believing God. God saw that faith and he counted it, credited it to him as righteousness. It's a legal act first and foremost. And this really, that this, this issue really is the crux of the issue of what Luther discovered 
and with which Rome disagreed. I want, to, I want to read to you from Luther's introduction to his commentary on the Psalms, his description of his own conversion. I greatly longed to be under Paul's, um, longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but one that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean the justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a troubled sinner in conscience. I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. And then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith, whereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. As his testimony, he was reading and studying Romans in preparation for some lectures at the monastery. He was saved. He understood. He was looking at the justice of God as God's justice in always punishing evil. You know, you ever stop to consider that if you're a sinner, the worst news in the world for you is that God is good. If you're a sinner, the worst news in the world for you is that God is good, that God is just. Because what must a good God do to sin? What must a just God do to sin? Luther was terrified. And he was doing everything Rome could give him. Flagellating himself. It's a way of punishing himself. Taking monastic vows of poverty. Celibacy. Nothing could clean his conscience. No amount of work, no amount of effort could make him feel confident that he could now at last stand before God until he realized that the gospel is God's offer of declaring, granting a righteousness so that Luther could say that in the gospel we are both sinner and saint. God has declared us to be sinless. He has declared us to be sanctified. And yet in practice we still sin. That's a tension, by the way, that Rome repeatedly calls a legal fiction. The notion that God would declare sinful people as innocent rather than making them righteous. Legal fiction. Now, I'll quote from a writer. The Council of Trent reveals that Rome considers Luther's simultaneous saint and sinner to be a most serious threat to the traditional teaching of the Catholic Church. The Roman Church contends that justification means making a man righteous in his own person. The Catholic reasons, how can God pronounce a man to be righteous in his sight unless he's actually righteous? He therefore thinks that a man must be born again and transformed before he can have the right standing with God. In this system of thought, a man can have no real assurance of salvation, for he can never be sure whether the Holy Spirit has made him righteous enough to be accepted of God. Now listen to this. Righteousness through Christ, and sometimes if you read the Reformers, they'll refer to it as an alien righteousness because it did not generate from us. It is not our righteousness. It is his. It is an alien righteousness because it came from without, and now it is in a foreign land. It does not belong there. It is an alien righteousness. 
That is me, simultaneously righteous and sinful. That, that is my contribution to my salvation, my sin. At the same time, I'm a sinner. God sees me as righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the message of salvation. So that, that's the disagreement. And they understood. Both sides understood. This, this comes down to a matter of being a different gospel. They also disagreed on how this... So they disagreed on what does it mean? What does justification mean? In Rome's view, Jesus gives you this sapling justification that you have to tend and grow. In, in, in Paul's understanding, in Luther's understanding of Paul, justification is a legal act where God declares you, counts you, credits you righteous. Second thing to disagree on, how do I get this justification? I think the Bible teaches, in response to our faith, God imputes Christ's righteousness to us, having imputed our sinfulness to him on the cross. Now that word imputation is, is a precise term. It's a word that some of your Bible translations will have, but what it means again is that reckoning. It's that notion of that alien righteousness coming in. God is not first and foremost making me more righteous. He first declares me to be legally righteous. I am in Christ. Or to flip the analogy around with the plant, Jesus in John 15 says, I am the true vine. He is my righteousness. He is my oak of righteousness. He is what I need to be acceptable to God. And he says, every branch that's in me bears good fruit. So there's a relationship, and we'll see in a minute, between being justified and bearing fruit. Rome got it backwards. They were seeing, if you bear the good fruit, you become more and more righteous, you get accepted in God's sight. Jesus says, no, I am your righteousness. I am your Savior. I am your satisfaction for sin. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. So, in response to our faith, God imputes Christ's righteousness to us, having imputed our sinfulness to him on the cross. There's this double exchange. He gets punished for my life. I get credited with his. He gets the guilt and the wrath of God for my sin, and I get God's acceptance and love for his righteous life. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, summing it up simply, Paul says this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin for us, so we might become righteous. The great exchange. So quickly, that means, according to Paul, it is by grace alone. Grace alone. What I mean by that is it's not merit. It's not something you deserve. It's not something you can warrant. It's by grace I don't do things so that God accepts me. He freely accepts me. It's by grace alone. You, you know the verse in Ephesians 2.8, by grace have you been saved through faith. This is not your undoing. This is the gift of God. This is the gift of God. Whereas according to Canon 9, if you deny that a person must first prepare and dispose themselves to cooperate with God's grace... You're cursed. You're cursed. Praise God. We do not under, abide under Paul's curse, but only Romans, the, churches, the Church of Rome's curse. I said that poorly. Second, it is through faith alone. It is through faith alone. Now, I think nothing could be clearer from reading Paul. We saw that already in Galatians Chapter 2, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. 2.16, but through faith. 
You can see it again in chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your own eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you're now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it has been in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. The contrast here is the, the instrumental means of justification, the, the, the tool that bridges that gap, that, that trigger, that causes God to declare righteous is our faith. Plus or minus nothing. Rome, however, teaches that there are many means of grace. There's the grace of the Eucharist. There's the grace of baptism. There's the grace of penance. There's the grace of indulgences. That's still going on. There's the grace of last rites. There's the grace of confession. The grace of good works. In fact, I'll just read one about the Eucharist. Their understanding of the the Lord's table is that it's not a sign or a symbol, but truly Christ is being re-crucified. Truly Christ is re-suffering. And, 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 and by eating that bread, that bread itself, the, the name for this is sacerdotal or sacramentalism, that it is a conduit, a vessel of grace to you that you need to be helped improve upon your justification. Canon 1 of the 13th session. Just listen to that. Let's read one of these. If anyone denies that the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and substantively the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pause. They're saying, if anyone denies that contained within this bread is both the body and blood substantively together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's all in the cracker, and consequently the whole Christ, but says that it is a sign only, let him be anathema, cursed to hell. It may be confusing because it looks like we're doing the same things. What we believe we are doing are very, very different. Very, very different. And it's by the righteousness of Christ alone. The righteousness of Christ alone. And that's the other point. Uh, in Rome's theology, there are some who, because of their virtuous lives, because of how well they improved upon their justification, they've got grace left over to spare. They refer to this as the treasury of merit. And so some people were actually more righteous than they needed to be. Their, their tree of righteousness was bigger than was required to get in. They got righteousness left over to share, and it goes into a treasury of merit. And so you can not only receive righteousness from Jesus, but from the saints as well. And no, we believe justification is by faith alone, through our faith alone, based upon the righteousness of Christ alone, without a treasury of merit. And really, there ends the point about our contrast with Rome. And we need to be kind to those of the Roman church. We certainly need to not assume they believe all this. We need to ask questions. But please don't think the Reformation was unnecessary, and please don't think it's over. It is not. I want to make a third point this morning. 
sort of rounding a corner. Because I, I think the danger that we can face, I, I don't think there are many in our fellowship who are, who are terribly confused on these issues, but I think that the danger we can make is that we can so react against that that we sort of go to another extreme. See, Rome is confused precisely because they mistake the relationship of faith and good works. Let us not make the opposite confusion. Point three, quickly. The gospel insists that justification produces good works. Now, the cause and effect relationship here is critical. We are not forgiven because we obey and produce good works. But because we are forgiven, we will obey and produce good works. Why is that the case? Well, first, if you look at Galatians 5, it's because we have been freed from slavery to sin. Because we've been freed from slavery to sin. Prior to our salvation, we were all slaves of sin, born into this world, children of wrath, dead in our sins. We were freed. Galatians 5, 13. You've been called, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbors yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are at war with the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are at war with the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. We have been freed. We are able to obey. And the faith that looks to Christ in the gospel is the one that says, Forgive me, cleanse me, free me from my sin. So those who come to Christ in faith are those who want to be cleansed. And then when they come to Christ, they've given the power to obey. The logic then is if you wanted to be free from sin, and if you have been freed from sin, then of course you will live differently. Your obedience doesn't, next point, your obedience doesn't, your deeds doesn't make you forgiven, but our deeds prove or disprove our justification. It's another way of saying, so you're one of those who wants to be freed from sin, whom God has freed from sin. Yes. Are you acting on that? No. One has to ask, do you want to be freed from sin? Fair enough question. Now we can struggle with this. And I want you to see this. I'm going to read some passages here. But Paul is equally emphatic. There's, there's a tension in Paul that I want you to get. And not, and not misunderstand. Here's the tension. Paul, repeatedly in all of his letters, we are forgiven. We are declared righteous. We are at peace with God because of our faith and our faith alone. The other thing Paul says equally clearly, those who live like hell will go there. That's what he says. You, you judge for yourself. Now that tension sounds difficult. The, it's right here in Ephesians 5. Look at this. We'll pick it up in verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's pretty clear. Is this something Paul teaches in only one place? No. Let me read some more to you. The reason I'm 
bumped this passage up with so many texts is because I really do think if we're in danger of any error, it's far more the error of the overreaction the other way. The overreaction the other way. Let me just read some of these to you. Romans 8, 13 to 14. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Paul's anticipating that people are going to come along and say, no, no, that's not true. You can be as unrighteous as you want and be a Christian. You can keep being as unrighteous as you want and be a Christian. Just don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These big laundry lists, I think, sweep us all up, potentially. It's certainly the way we formerly lived. What Paul's saying is that these things still define you. They still are what you do and who you are. He says, such were some of you. Ephesians 5, 5 through 7. Listen to this. You can be sure of this. This is if Paul says, well, some of the things I say, if there's anything I say you can be sure of, you can be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Paul is anticipating the church will be filled with people with empty words saying, no, 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 no. What it sounds like is this. You asked Jesus into your heart. You prayed the prayer and you meant it. It doesn't matter how you live. You can't lose your salvation. Paul would call those empty, deceptive words. Take it up with Paul. Let's move on to Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will see the Lord. Now, I want to try to piece this together to make some sense. I get you're seeing the tension, but again, the logic again is this. Those who turn to Christ in faith do so precisely because they're looking to him to free them from the power and the penalty and the presence of their sin. I don't want to be punished for my sin. I don't want to be ruled by my sin. I want to be like you. I want you to forgive me. I want to please you. And then in forgiveness, Christ empowers them to do just that. So that when somebody stays living just like the world, just like they were before, it begs the question, do you really want to please the Lord? Do you really, do you, is that what you want, really? Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, now it's not perfection, there's no bar how good do I have to be. You just got to grow. If these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. My brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Those good deeds don't make you saved. They confirm your justification. Let's just go to the Lord himself. This is the passage God used to save me. Matthew 7. It's not in there. You can write it in Matthew 7, 17 to 23. Let's just take it from the lips of our Lord himself. Every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. In Matthew 7, 17 through 23. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, 
nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. They will confirm, will demonstrate, prove the validity of their faith and their justification by their fruits. Then Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. So let's just bring it to a close here, being clear. We make a tragic and damning error. When we confuse, we flip it around, we think, my good deeds, my obedience is why God will forgive me, is why God will let me into heaven. Paul says, that's the last blank. If we trust in our good deeds, we will perish. We'll perish. Make an equally great mistake, according to the Apostle Paul, when we say, well, since the good deeds are not foundational, but rather the fruit of justification, who cares about good deeds? I mean, we should do it after all, but let's not make a big deal of it. That's an equally dangerous error, according to Paul, because you hear him say again and again and again, such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. I warn you now as I warn you then, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. No inheritance in the kingdom of God. Jesus, many will say, Lord, Lord, the faith that saves, the faith that justifies, will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, inevitably produce fruit in the life. Not perfect, but will be growing. The analogy Jesus uses in John 15 of the vine, he is our righteousness, but if we are in him, what does he say? Every branch in me will bear good fruit. This is important. This is the gospel. This is, this is our salvation. We, let's be rigorous in our thinking. Let's be robust in our thoughts. Let's, let's study the scriptures to see if these things are so. And let us cling to Christ, praising God for our salvation. Let's, let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your message of salvation. We thank you that you have used men like Martin Luther and the other reformers to help bring greater clarity and attention to these teachings of Paul found in your word. And so, Lord, guard us from either error. Guard us from trusting in our deeds. Guard us from looking to our deeds for our assurance. Guard us from casting them off as unimportant. Give us hearts that because we are trusting in Christ, because we are looking to Christ, strive to please you and obey you. And give us the grace and the power by your spirit to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Children, the donuts are downstairs. <laughs>